0: Hello, my name is Farah Osbeck. Welcome to Military Law Matters, the podcast that gives you insight into military law, so you know your rights and don't become a victim of injustice. Today, we'll be talking to attorney Scott McKay. Scott is a retired Army Reserve Judge Advocate, and he's also an expert in the disability evaluation system. Scott is going to give us an excellent overview of the disability evaluation system, or DES. He's going to discuss cases he's handled. He's going to provide us valuable information Um, So, if you are an active duty member or veteran and you're going to go through the DES system, you really need to listen to this episode because you're going to learn a wealth of information. Scott does pro bono work for veterans related to disability related applications to the Board of Military, Correction of Military Records. He only, though, takes clients through referrals from his attorney network. So you don't want to miss this episode. A little note about this episode, um, the the episode is very clear. There's just a very brief moment in the beginning that there's a little bit of an echo while I'm reading Scott's bio. So please excuse that. Skype is a wonderful system, wonderful technology where you can talk to people all over the world. Sometimes a little bit of a technical difficulty. So I hope you excuse that, but stay tuned for a wonderful episode. Good afternoon, Scott. Glad you could join us today on the Military Law Matters podcast, the podcast that's serves the best listeners in the world. How are you doing today, Scott?
1: I'm fine. And I I very much appreciate uh, the opportunity to chat with you today.
0: Well, Scott, uh, I I do appreciate and I know our listeners are going to get so much information from this. So I'd really um, very happy you could join us today. And you know, on this show, we like to arm our listeners with knowledge so they become actually they don't become a victim of injustice. So thanks again for joining us and our uh, listeners are going to get the opportunity to learn from you a little bit more about the disability evaluation system because it's a very unique and very specialized area. And I know you're definitely an expert in this area. So before we begin the interview, Scott, I'd like to tell our listeners a little bit about you. Scott McKay is a graduate of West Point, and he served on active duty in the Army as both a line officer and a judge advocate in a variety of positions in the office of the secretary, the 101st Airborne Division, and the 2nd and 7th Infantry Divisions in the Army. He retired from the Army Reserve as a lieutenant colonel after serving for 23 years of active and reserve service. While an Army JAG, Scott served as a senior trial attorney in the Department of Justice Fraud Section, where he investigated and prosecuted cases involving procurement fraud violations of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, perjury, telemarketing fraud, public corruption, and fraud relating to classified contracts. In 1995, Scott joined Lockheed Martin, serving as in-house counsel, where he held a variety of positions, including General Counsel of Lockheed Martin Information Systems and Global Solutions, and he was the Deputy General Counsel for Lockheed Martin Corporation and Chief of Litigation and Compliance. Scott retired in 2015, but he continued to provide pro bono legal services for veterans before the Boards for Correction of Military Records, the U.S. Court of Federal Claims, U.S. District Courts, and the Department of Veterans Affairs. Well, that is quite an impressive bio and a very distinguished career, Scott. So um, let us now start by asking you some questions so our listeners can learn uh, from all your experience. So, Scott, first of all, um, our listeners don't know you actually – You know, I did mention you do these cases for veterans on a pro bono basis. This is not a job for you. You don't make money, but we appreciate you sharing with us. But how did you first get into the pro bono work for veterans?
1: Well, when I was working in-house at Lockheed Martin, our offices weren't really too far from the old Walter Reed uh, Army Medical Center. And although I hadn't done disability cases as a judge advocate, I thought that with my Army background and my legal experience, I might be able to uh, help the wounded warriors there at uh, Walter Reed. So I w- went over and reached out to the SJA office to see if there's any work I could do. And, and they said, sure. They put me through a week-long training course as a Red Cross volunteer uh, regarding the disability evaluation system. And I went to uh, went to work doing pro bono work part-time at Walter Reed. And at first I did a variety of things, including preparing briefings and and doing uh, research and helping prepare cases. Uh, but then it, it, the deputy director really kind of thought I might provide the most service to the wounded warriors more in my individual capacity by helping wounded warriors who were no longer entitled to legal assistance from the military file applications to the Army Board for Correction of Military Records since these were soldiers. So that's what I started doing. I I started taking cases that their office would refer to me uh, that they could no longer represent the soldiers and, and help them in front of the Army Board for Correction of Military Records and found out that there was plenty of work to be done.
0: Okay. Okay. Great. Great. Yeah, that's yep. that's wonderful that you did that, because as as we know, there are a lot of veterans that need help, and some of them, you know, cannot afford um, to pay for a lawyer. So I'm glad you, you know, got into that field. So Scott, you know, many of our listeners are not familiar with the military disability procedures. So I think it would be a good um, place to start right now if you can give us a general overview of DOD's disability evaluation system.
1: Sure. Um, Military disability decisions are now made under what's called the Integrated Disability Evaluation System, or IDES, or IDES, you hear it different ways, which is really a a much more streamlined version than the system uh, that used to exist, the legacy system. It's a joint program by the Department of Defense and the Department of Veterans Affairs, or the VA, and it evaluates service members' Fitness for duty and eligibility on the DOD side, and then their VA disability compensation and benefits on the VA side. And the whole system really kicked off in about 2007 when there was a lot of publicity about care being given to to veterans at Walter Reed. And uh, in 2011, a pilot program that had been in existence uh, came into full operation, and now all the military departments use it, and it's, uh, it's really quite a, I think, uh, good system relative to the way it used to
0: be. Okay. Now, you mentioned that the IDES process was streamlined. How, how was it streamlined?
1: Well, really the key is that under the IDES, a service member going through the service disability process also has a VA claim file initiated at the same time that is simultaneously processed with the military disability system. So that way the service member only has one set of medical examinations to go through, and both the military and the VA use those medical examinations to determine both the military disability question and the VA benefits question. So when the soldier or the service member separates, they're ready to roll with their VA benefits. Under the legacy system before the IDES, there were two separate parallel systems. So someone would go through their military disability process, they might leave the service, and then they'd have to start all over and do it again through the VA. And as a result, they might not start getting their VA benefits for a year, two years after that. So the, the idea is really streamlines that and, and makes it all happen simultaneously.
0: Well, that was, uh, that was a brilliant idea, whoever decided to do that. So I'm, I'm glad that helps, uh, shorten the process, uh, the timing for the resolution of that. So Scott, can you tell our listeners how is a service member referred to the IDES?
1: Well, it, you know, it varies a little bit from from uh, military service to military service, but basically um, a, a commander or another military official or a board in consultation with a medical provider, whether an active duty or reserve medical provider, uh, if they believe a soldier or a service member has one or more medical conditions that may prevent him or her from reasonably performing the duties of their office grade rank or rating then they can be referred to the IDES.
0: Okay. So that so I have a question about that. I sometimes, you know, get questions from um, people who call, and one of the questions I get is, well, what is the meaning of performing duties of the grade rank or rating? So, for example, let's say there is a pilot, um, and that pilot can no longer fly the plane he, he or she flies but they can perform other duties not relating to flying. Will that pilot be referred to IDES because they can no longer fly, which was the primary duty he or she had, um, but they can still do other things? How does that work, Scott?
1: Well, um, basically, they might get referred to the IDES, but they don't have to be, because just because a service member has a medical condition, even one that may not meet retention standards or may impact the ability to do one's job, it doesn't mean they have to be referred to the IDES. Really, for each of the military services, the disability evaluation system is a performance-based system. Designed to assess whether a service member's medical condition sufficiently impacts his or her ability to perform duties appropriate to the rank rating or MOS. So, in other words, the military can and often does administratively determine that someone with a medical condition that prevents him or her from doing one job can be reclassified into another rating or military occupational specialty to do another job. So to your example, if a pilot has some medical condition that prevents the pilot from being on flight status or being able to fly anymore, it may be that that pilot can then be reclassified into an acquisition-related rating or MOS and perform those duties just fine, stay in the military, and not get referred to the IDA's. Each of the military departments has a different way of doing this. I'm a little more familiar with the Army. And they've created a MOS, Military Occupational Specialty Military Retention Board, that actually processes administrative reviews to kind of make the call early on administratively, whether someone should be reclassified or perhaps then they should be um, referred to the uh, the IDES. I know the Air Force has a similar program, and I'm, I'm not familiar with the Navy or, or Marines, but assume they, they likely have one as well.
0: Okay. All right. Well, that, that's that's good to know. So if someone, you know, can't perhaps perform their specific job, it's good to know they may be not 100%, but they may be able to be reclassified. So now let's say a decision then is made, Scott, to refer a service member to IDES. What, what happens next?
1: Okay. So as I mentioned, the first thing that happens is a VA claim is, is submitted. So they, the service member gets a VA file started. So that is very important because that'll track along the the military process and then the service member has to undergo various medical examinations consistent with va protocols these are sometimes referred to as compensation and pension examinations and they're done by a combination of military va or, or sometimes authorized civilian medical providers often depending on the status and location of the service member Active duty folks typically will will go to active duty treat uh, providers at military treatment facilities. Reservists sometimes end up seeing more of, on the civilian side, but the fact is that depending on what their particular medical conditions are, they they run through a gamut of medical examinations consistent with VA protocols.
0: Okay. Now, can the service member choose the provider for the medical examinations?
1: generally no uh, that that is decided by the folks running the particular ides process for that service member and there are always exceptions to every rule but it's not as though a service member could say no i want my private physician to do this examination generally the the individual is told you have to go to this particular treatment facility or this particular doc to have the examination done
0: okay okay so um- in terms of – so now we're at the, the point where there's a – can you run us to the physical evaluation board process? Sure.
1: Yeah, after, after these examinations are done, there's a obviously a voluminous file of, the, of all the, the examinations and the, and the medical records of the service member. And those go to what's called a medical evaluation board, or MEB and the meb really takes a look at the entire file and on a on a form that varies from service to service determines which of the sol- uh, the service members conditions do not meet medical retention standards and probably most significantly the meb makes a recommendation whether or not the case should be referred to what's called a physical evaluation board. In some instances, the MEB may say, oh, there's really nothing wrong with this individual that would prevent continued service, and he should be returned to duty. But an MEB may also say, no, this individual should be referred to what's called a physical evaluation board. And then the first step is to go to what's called an informal physical evaluation board, which is a little bit of a misnomer because it's not as though the service member appears in front of an actual board. It's a group of officers, including a medical person. The the, informal Evaluation Board has responsibility to make some very critical determinations. Number one, they determine line of duty whether or not the uh, medical conditions were incurred in line of duty, whether the service member is fit or unfit for continued service, and uh, if unfit, identify the specific unfitting medical conditions, and then recommend separation from active duty with a final disposition based on the degree of disability. Um, and obviously, if someone has a permanent disability uh, of thirty percent or more, they get retired. If it's thirty, um, if it's less than thirty percent then uh, they're separated with severance pay. The informal PEB also makes one other critical determination, and it's actually referred to as an administrative determination. They determine if the military unfitting conditions were combat related. And there's a whole variety of different ways something can be combat related. doesn't mean it has to have been incurred in actual combat where someone's shooting. It can also involve a training accident where you're in conditions simulating war and things like that but that's a very important determination because it can have tax consequences if uh if your disability is combat related then your disability pay is exempt from federal
0: income tax okay okay scott before we go to the next step so just to uh, reiterate so it goes to the meb and if the person is does not, is not found to have anything unfitting, that's it, it's over. If not, it goes to the next phase, which is the informal physical evaluation board. So that's important to know. When you said temporary disability with, um, is how do you, if you know offhand, how often is that individual examined to determine whether it becomes permanent or not? Is there a general time frame for that to do, to make it f- final, that decision?
1: Yeah, if someone actually gets, uh, it's determined that they have a a temporary disability and they're put on what's called the temporary disability retired list, Uh, it used to be, uh, it had to be resolved within five years. But Congress recently amended the statute. Now it's within three years. But as a practical matter, generally about every six months, if an individual is on the temporary disability retired list, they're reexamined and the stability of the unfitting condition is then determined to be either continued to be unstable or if it's stable. If it's stable, then the individual generally will go through a, another PEB and a final determination will be made at that time.
0: Okay, great. So I think now I, the case as it's progressing along, does it, is it now at the point where it goes to the the VA disability rating portion?
1: That's right. Once the informal PEB decides whether someone has unfitting medical conditions or not, if there are unfitting medical conditions, then the IPEB or the informal PEB forwards the case to the VA disability rating activity site, sometimes you'll hear it referred to as the DRAS, to determine the degree of disability for each condition claim. Unfitting conditions are called referred conditions, and other service-connected medical conditions that the PEB said are not unfitting are called claim conditions. But the PEB only uses the referred conditions for military disability determination. And this is really the whole idea of the IDES because it's the VA – that looks at the unfitting conditions and says, okay, we're going to apply the VA rating, uh, the VA schedule for rating disabilities, the VASRD." D, and they, the VA- DRAS says, this one's 20%, this one's 10%, this one's 30%, and the IPEB under the IDES has to accept those ratings. The IPEB has no authority to change the VA's ratings. Once the VA applies the ratings, and sends it back to the informal PEB, the informal PEB tells the service member, okay, here's what was decided in your case. And the service member has a couple of options. Number one, the service member can ask for a one-time reconsideration of the VA rating. It's called a VA request for reconsideration, or a VARR. The service member can also decide, well, I agree with the informal PEB, sign off, and whatever the PEB recommended, that's what will be implemented for the soldier. Or the soldier or the service member can say, I disagree with the informal PEB, and I would like to have a formal PEB. And that's when the soldier would actually have a full-blown administrative hearing where he or she could be represented by counsel. And the formal PEB isn't bound by what the informal PEB did, so the rating can go up or the rating can go down depending on the nature and extent of the unfitting injuries. So there's a lot of work that the council who represents soldiers or service members do because it's a tactical decision. Do you want to go to a formal PEB where your your rating can actually decrease?
0: Hmm. yeah yeah that's interesting yeah i and I wonder, I guess it depends on the facts of the case, right, whether the service member chooses one way or the other
1: well, it does and and I think that's why it's so critical that um f- for any of this this process that that the Service member really work with with appointed counsel who are familiar with the boards and know the process. They know their local boards. They know what likely is going to happen, and it's very critical to to listen to their guidance. Um, but at the end of the day, the, the the formal PEB issues a decision, and then that is reviewed further up the chain uh, of the military department. In the Army, it's at the U.S. Army Physical Disability. Uh, agency, and it's a different organization in the other military departments. And then uh, if that's approved, um, the the rating is is final. And if the individual got a 30% or higher combined disability rating, they'll be retired. If less than 30, they'll be separated with severance pay.
0: Okay. And, you know, just for our listeners, I I mean, I am assuming like there are a lot of service members who are referred to these boards who don't want to leave the military. So I get just the tactics all depend to some people want, you know, are want to serve want they think they're healthy and, you know, don't have, infi- and then there are some service members who are fighting for retirement. So that's just important to, because w- when we're talking about this, you know, people might assume that everyone going to these boards are trying to, you know, get a medical retirement or a medical separation, but that's not the case, right, Scott? I mean, maybe the cases you handle are ones who are trying to increase their rating or different things, but I think in the military, there are many people who try to fight and, and say, no, I'm fit, and they want to stay and serve every, every day they can.
1: That's right, Farrah, and, and that's, that is a lot of the focus of the boards at the local level, um, and, and the, the service member has to work with council and, more importantly, work with his or her chain of command to get the kind of support to show the board and to convince the board that notwithstanding the medical side of things, this individual can perform his or her rating or his or her military occupational specialty at the appropriate rank and should stay in. And and the boards, both the MEBs and the PEBs do keep people in. I, I I'm glad you raised that. I don't mean to suggest that it's just because someone goes to a PEB means they're automatically going to be placed out of the out of the service. That's a very important function for the board to determine what's fitting and what isn't unfitting. And there's a lot of advocacy that goes on, on around that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I remember I worked at the staff personnel council. We saw cases can't come in. And, and, and as you said, it was very important. Sometimes the service, men, it, it was close, but if they you know, were advocating to stay in, and their command, as you said, it's very important if the command supported them, you know, based on their just, you know, their duty performance, how they perform, that's very important. So it's important to get the support of your chain of command um, either way, really. So um, it's funny listening to you discuss all these. Uh, I think this is the field that has the most acronyms, like the DRAS, the S. You know, there's so many uh, acronyms. We have to have a specialty in this IPEB. Um, it's not just the military. The VA, It's nice to see the VA has a lot of acronyms as well, but it it's always makes me laugh hearing the all the acronyms. So now... One of the things I want to ask you, Scott, was a lot of veterans, for example, might receive a VA disability um, payment for a service-connected medical condition. But if they do get the VA disability payment, can they also receive their military retired pay in addition to the VA disability benefit? The
1: the short answer is no, but with two very big exceptions. Generally, uh, the rule is a veteran cannot receive both military retired pay whether disability or longevity, uh, and VA disability benefits. The, the law requires that a retiree has to choose which pay they want to receive, and if they choose to receive their VA disability compensation, those funds uh, are offset or deducted from their military retirement pay. The, the disability benefits are not taxable. The retired pay generally is So that's why it's often called the military retired pay waiver.
0: Okay. Can I ask you, so would there be a a reason why someone would want to choose to go with the military retired pay then since the VA pay is not taxable? Like what circumstance would there be where they chose to go with the military retired pay?
1: I I think that um, I'm hard pressed to think of a reason why. Some may say, well, you know, the VA pay can change. I mean, your your VA rating can change over time and you can receive less. Well, if that's the case, then you have less offset from your military retired pay. I, I think the rule of thumb, at least with the lawyers I've talked to, is that it is always better to take the VA Disability pay because of the tax, uh, the it's not taxable. Now that being said, Farah, you know and I know there's an exception to every rule, but I just <laughs> I just can't think of, of of a situation at this point where where someone might want to uh, take taxable military retired pay instead of non-taxable disability pay.
0: Yeah, that makes sense to me. So, But I
1: did mention that there were two exceptions, and I won't get into the details other than to say there's one exception called concurrent retired disability pay, where if a soldier or a service member is a retiree from active service or reserve retiree who has 20 good years and has hit the age of retirement, usually 60 Uh, and has a VA combined disability rating of 50% or more, they can receive this concurrent retired disability pay, which is basically an amount equivalent to the offset amount. And then secondly, there's something called combat-related special compensation, so that if a a service member is receiving military disability retired pay with a VA disability rating of at least 10%, um, they can receive this combat-related special compensation payment up to the maximum amount that would be offset if their military disability has been determined to be combat-related. And you may recall, I, I said that was a an administrative determination of great importance made by the, uh, the PEB.
0: Okay. So, Scott, I know over the years you've handled a lot of uh, cases and, you know, at the BCMR, the Army Board for Correction of Military Records. Is there a most common type of disability related case that you've handled before these boards?
1: Yeah, I think that, that the one I've seen most often is one actually contemplated by the IDES process. And um, that's where you apply. I have applied successfully to the uh, Army Board for Correction of Military Records, seeking to increase a soldier's military disability rating based on a, a VA decision to increase the rating of the soldier's unfitting condition while he or she was in service, but after the PEB actually acted. So the IDES has a, a DoD instruction and a manual that expressly provides that a service member may seek corrections board relief, not limited to the Army by any means, uh, and a cor- and correction of the service member's military disability rating if the VA changes the disability rating of an unfitting condition while in service, and that change may result in a different military disposition, a uh, dis- disability disposition, and. The key, though, is that the rating change has to be one done by the VA, and it has to be the result either from new information that was not considered by the VA or the PEB at the time of the original rating, or if the change resulted from an appeal, sometimes called in the VA system a notice of disagreement of the original VA rating.
0: Okay. Okay. So I know with the cases, um, I, I know based on your expertise, you've had some favorable results with the Army Board of Correctional Mil- Military Records. Can you discuss
1: guess that for us? Yeah, I had one case, and uh, this 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 case went about as smoothly as one can ever hope for. Other than it took the VA a long time to act, but uh, it was a l- lieutenant colonel and. Um, Basically, the VA assigned and the PEB adopted a 50% combined disability rating for her. And then I helped her with a notice of disagreement to the VA, which took about two years, um, which resulted in the VA increasing her rating from for the unfitting conditions to 60%. So originally, it was 50%. Then the VA said, no, we made a mistake at 60%. So we submitted that VA decision to the ABCMR and sure enough, it ordered her military disability rating increase from 50% to 60%. Given her, her grade, um, it, it was not an insubstantial amount of uh, increased disability pay.
0: Oh, yeah. Great results. So, so when you talk about the notice of disagreement, what exactly does that entail? I mean, are you getting further medical examinations? What do you exactly do to help that, uh, for example, that service member get the increased rating?
1: Yeah, the, a, a further a subsequent medical examination for this purpose is really of no use because what you're focused on is the service member was in service. So the focus really is to find an error that the VA DRAS, the rating activity site, made when it rated the unfitting conditions considered by the PEB. And one thing I always look for is – During the IDES process, did the soldier or the service member submit a VA request for reconsideration of the original rating that the VA gave to the unfitting condition? Because oftentimes, the soldier will do that on very meritorious grounds, but the VA DRAS will deny the request for reconsideration. So I I think that one of the things that I, I always look at is whether or not the service member During the IDES process, requested a VA uh, request for reconsideration. And even if the DRAS denied that, my experience has been that on a notice of disagreement on an appeal to a VA regional office, they're often sometimes much more lenient. And they will go ahead and on the same facts relating to the unfitting condition during service, they'll grant the notice of disagreement. So I I oftentimes just use the same arguments that were used for the VA request for reconsideration. In addition, I look for other errors in the original determination as well, because what I have found literally is that the VA is not always consistent in the way it it applies both the facts and law. So you you make the argument on a notice of appeal, and, and oftentimes you're surprised that you'll get a different result and it'll be of benefit to the service member.
0: Okay. So what you said initially is very important because I asked you, well, do you get another medical examination? And you pointed out, no, be- not in this case, because we're talking about our condition from back during that time. So another medical examination now will do no good, correct? I mean, that's the theory behind that.
1: Right. That That's right. I mean, the, because the whole focus is on the unfitting condition during service. Yeah. If If after separation you get a subsequent examination, that that really is of no relevance to the condition that was in existence at the time during service.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, so that was an interesting case. Is there another case that you'd like to discuss that you you handle that the listeners might get a learning experience from?
1: Yeah, a similar case uh, that uh, went relatively smoothly, Uh, the VA assigned and the PEB adopted a 60% combined disability rating for a first lieutenant in the Indiana National Guard uh, who had suffered some injuries while deployed to Afghanistan. And the, uh, the VA increased the rating of the unfitting condition um, while in service to 100 percent based on a successful notice of uh, disagreement and applied to the BCMR to uh, increase the lieutenant's military disability rating based on that change, and they did. So it went from 60 percent to 100 percent, although by statute, the maximum military disability is 75 percent.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. was. Would- Great. uh, Great help for that service member. Um, So, Scott, again, so we discussed that in order to increase the rating, the change must relate to the service member's unfitting condition at the time the service member was in service. So we got that. Now, um, and, and you can't change it related to the condition after separation, but what happens, so if a service member has a condition after separation that is deemed service-connected but was not noted as unfitting at the time he was in the service, what what can the service member do in that case? Did that make sense? <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, it okay. does. Okay. And,
1: and Farah, you have identified a, a very typical situation about which, regrettably, there is not... A tremendous amount that can be done for the service member. A service member's options to successfully challenge a PEB's decision that a medical condition was not unfitting are very, very limited unless you have evidence that shows the PEB decision was a, a clear mistake or an oversight. For example, if um, I actually saw this in another BCMR case, I didn't handle it, but um, where if A a PEB referred a condition as unfitting to the VA, but then somehow that condition was omitted and not rated by the VA or PEB, I think you could get that corrected. Uh, But both the BCMRs and the courts are really reluctant to second guess a PEB's decision on the uh, unfitting nature of, of a condition. The time to challenge that is before the informal PEB or the formal PEB. Because once the p e b rules, it's real hard to reverse that,
0: okay, um, so there was um i think was there a case that you handled regarding uh e five and the Pennsylvania national Guard
1: yeah i i it was a very interesting case uh, and and I think it 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 involved a change in rating, but not on an appeal. So this, this was a, a E5 in, in the, uh, the Pennsylvania National Guard, and um, he went, uh, the VA assigned and the PEB adopted a 40% combined disability rating for him. But while he was still in service, because he was in the Guard, so he, he was um, pending processing through the DES, but still in service, he, he went ahead and filed a supplemental VA claim and lo and behold, the VA increased his rating of the unfitting conditions to 60%. So he went from 40% to 60%. So with that in hand, I went ahead and helped him file an ABC MR application, which in the ABCR initially denied the application, saying that the PEB didn't commit an error and that the uh, subsequent VA ratings were different from and don't affect a PEB rating and this was so wrong that we decided to give him a, another chance to consider it and filed a request for reconsideration with the BCMR and ultimately after some fits and starts they ruled uh, in favor of the uh, sergeant and corrected his records to increase his uh, military disability rating to 60% so it was a it was a nice win although it it took about 3 years to finally get the BCMR to see it our way.
0: Okay. Wow. So you have to be paid. These things are very complex. And and I guess since they do have, I mean, I guess the process is, I guess there's a positive because when I deal with my clients doing, you know, upgrade discharges, I say it's they have a lot of backlog in cases, but they also don't pencil whip these. I mean, would you agree they, I mean, in, I know I don't really do much of the medical type cases for the discharge review board, but they have a lot of cases and they really look very carefully at them. So, I mean, it's good maybe that it takes long, but it's also bad because obviously the the individuals who are filing the applications want want a resolution. But would you, agree? I mean, what is your experience as far as the personnel handling these cases and their attention to detail and, you know, conscientiousness from, you know, just from your experience? Uh,
1: my, my experience is that the, uh, the boards are very conscientious. They, they carefully review the cases. They seek advisory opinions from other staff agencies within the military department. They're frankly just overwhelmed. Um, DOD and, well, Congress and then DOD, have enacted some legislation that um, basically tasks the boards to review a lot of discharges based on PTSD, which is a good thing. And that's just overwhelmed the boards. I mean, they are overwhelmed and understaffed and they do the best work they can. And it is frustrating sometimes that it takes so long, but they definitely do carefully review the cases. Now, I don't, necessarily agree with a lot of their outcomes, but I cannot for a second say that they don't conscientiously and thoroughly consider the cases.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's that's my experience as well. But I mean, obviously, they, maybe they need more personnel to help them out, but because they do... Look at these carefully, Um, and you know it's great that we have advocates such as yourself that, and and who's really an expert in this field. So I'm going to jump ahead a little bit um, in terms of I had to discuss some cases with you, but can you uh, tell me, Scott, what other bases for relief have you asserted in uh, disability-related applications to the correction boards?
1: Well, I I think that um, typically one of the the primary arguments that you advance with any correction board is that the in, in, dis, in disposing a case and handling a case, the military department, whether it's the Army or the Air Force or whatever it may be, didn't follow its own regulations. I think that's a, uh, a really, uh, really critical argument to make because not only does it resonate with the correction board, but it also resonates with a court if you actually have a correction board decision reviewed. And and I think that uh, I have had some, some luck doing that. Um, For instance, I I had a, uh, an E8, a master sergeant in the army who was going through the uh, IDES process and the regulations require army regulations required that um, when someone's going through that process, who has at least 18 years of service, they have to be counseled in writing about their ability to request continuation on active duty, and, the, uh, and it actually has to be in writing showing that the service member decided not to re- request this continuation on active duty. In this E8 case, uh, the master sergeant's case, the Army failed to do this, and he was retired with a 30% disability. So we went to the ABCMR and said, hey, look, he wasn't given a chance to stay on active duty for the remaining two years, retire for longevity, and get a 50% longevity retirement. And um, the ABCMR agreed, and they went ahead and corrected his records to void his permanent disability retirement, to reflect his continuation on active duty for two more years, and uh, to give him back pay. And it also made him eligible for concurrent disability retirement payments because he had a VA rating that was over 50%.
0: that's a fantastic result. So did, I mean, did he actually have to return to active duty or was it just corrected based on your application?
1: It was just um, correction. So consistent with the decision, his records were corrected to show that he had 20 years of active federal service and that he got all that back pay and allowance net any disability payments received. You know, it's interesting. I had another case um, to our earlier discussion about combat-related. It was actually an Army judge advocate who was hurt going through the judge advocate basic course on a leadership reaction course. And he was retired with a very serious back injury, but his disability was not determined to be combat-related. And the reg is very, very clear, both the DOD instruction and the Army regulation that a leadership reaction course is a basically a condition simulating war, and it is combat related, such that his disability pay should have been tax exempt. We applied to the BCMR, and they uh, they approved it. So, he, as a result, his military disability pay was was uh, was tax exempt. Another one, uh, my my one and only Air Force case <laughs> uh, involved the a, an Air Force major who um, the Air Force Personnel Command determined that her disability retirement should be pursuant to 10 U.S.C. Section 1204, which is a statute applicable to reserve members, as opposed to 10 U.S.C. 1201, which is the statute applicable to active duty members, even though she was injured during a period of active duty in excess of 30 days. And the regs and the DOD instruction, all very clear that she should have gone out under 1201 instead of 1204. Now, you would say, what difference does it make? Well, it made a big difference in payment of her household goods shipment. So she was out of pocket a substantial amount for her household goods, so we applied to the Air Force Board for correction military records, and they went ahead and uh, and granted relief because the Air Force didn't follow its own regulations.
0: Okay, so that's the key. If you can find a case where they don't, right? According to you, Scott, if you can find a case where the the mil- the service is not following their own regulations, that's uh that's looking positive, right?
1: <laughs> Absolutely, and and you know, I, I think anyone who has been around the military long enough knows. That it's, it's a complex organization, there's a lot of parts, and people have a lot to do, and sometimes things slip through the crack. And, you know, I view my job as an advocate for the service member is to hold the military departments to the same high standards they hold the ser- service members to. And and ultimately, you know, if you have the evidence, the boards generally are pretty good about buying into it.
0: Yeah, no it, it makes me laugh because really in the cases as I said I do the discharge mostly discharge upgrades and it could be the discharge review board or the BCMR too because they also look at it but I always tell clients that you know it's either legal error or injustice so and, and the legal error if you can find that that's really a you know looking good and it's not that common not, but as you said mistakes are made and if you can point that out they're gonna say yeah because no one's perfect so sometimes mistakes happen but you know more common is the injustice argument because the illegal errors are not as frequent, but they do happen. So they happen in these disability cases as well as, well as the discharge cases. So it's the same thing I tell the clients and, and you're right. We're holding the, the government, the services to the high standard and, and they're ha- you know, they, they will do the right thing. If we point it out, they're going to make the change. And that's the beauty of having the system where thank God we have these service members who have the ability to have reconsiderations of their cases, um, and you know, just to have that system in place. So, Scott, I want to turn to. I know, so we do all these cases, and we go to the Board for Correction of Military Records, and. What happens though? I mean, you're a great advocate. I know you're an excellent, outstanding attorney. But if the board, though, you know, they make the wrong decision and the the board denies relief, what remedy does a veteran have to correct? Now, you know, to, to go further past the board for correction of military records for the service.
1: Well, well, basically, there's there's only one remedy, and that's to seek uh, judicial review in in either one of t- or two, one or the other jurisdiction, the U.S. Court of Federal Claims or a United States District Court. And um, unfortunately, uh, obtaining relief in that regard, uh, judicial review, is difficult and challenging. Again, absent clear or unequivocal evidence of a failure by a a PEB or a BCMR to follow applicable statutes or regulations. Both the Court of Federal Claims and the district courts give substantial deference to the military departments, uh, to their actions and decisions in particular to personnel decisions, because the courts always say we're not in the business of, of running the military. Um, the courts aren't going to reweigh the evidence. In other words, they're not going to substitute their judgment for the military department's judgment, even if the courts disagree. You know, there are, Cases both in the Court of Federal Claims and in the district courts where the judges say, well, if, if it were this court's decision, the court might not come out this way. But, you know, it was a rational decision by the military. There's substantial evidence to support it, and they're not going to reverse it. But I think that that doesn't mean, again, and we discussed this, that if there is a clear violation of the military where it didn't follow its own regulations, the courts will grant relief, but the courts don't step in and order the government to do something generally. What they do is send the case back. So if the BCMR made a decision, the court will issue a decision, say, here are the parameters, here's what should have been done in terms of interpreting this reg, we're sending it back to the BCMR for them to make a decision consistent with the proceedings. And there are, unfortunately, instances, and I've had one myself, where I had a district court, or the Court of Federal Claims, sent a case back and said, reconsider this. And on reconsideration, the military came up with a new and improved rationale that that passed muster with the Court of Federal Claims, and my client was left without a remedy, So, you you know, winning in the federal courts is not easy, but it does happen.
0: Okay. And so you handled cases in the federal court as well then, as you just said, you had a case um, that you did. And and what's the, I mean, what's the decision as far as taking it? I guess it's whether the client wants to take it up as far. I guess the lawyer can advise what the chances are of winning, right? As a lawyer, you would give advice like, oh, we have a good chance or we don't have a good chance.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, you you know, you got to be uh, pretty plain with the client about the likelihood of success on the merits, and and uh, and make it pretty plain, f- pretty clear. Fortunately, the investment for someone, one of my clients, is small. Uh, all they have to do is pay the filing fee, which is four hundred dollars, which is not cheap. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I don't include that in my pro bono services, but my time is cheap, and I do the rest for them free. So if they're willing to Invest the $400 to pay for the filing fee, then uh, then we can proceed. But I, I'm pretty blunt about likelihood of success because it, it you know it, it takes about a year to, to slog through a court of federal claims decision or a district court decision, and uh, you, you hate to get people's hope up only to be dashed.
0: True, true. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty blunt with people who (laughs) call me as well. And you don't want to give their hope. You know, you tell them what you believe based on your experience, the chances of success are. But I mean, there's never a guarantee. And there's some cases where based on the facts and the law, there might be a higher chance of success, whereas other cases, uh, you know, it's Maybe 50-50, but you're right. Um, yeah, definitely don't want to say, oh, yeah, this is an easy case to win. So, Scott, I mean, in listening to you, I, I myself has lear- have learned so much. I know that it's just such a really com- complex. I know for you it's it's based on your experience. You know this stuff inside out, um, and you've shared so much information. At least it's going to give our listeners, you know, the issue spotting, things to be aware of, and, uh, and the beauty of a podcast. They can listen uh, over and over. I think I'm going to listen to this a couple of times myself. But um, can you give us, just based on your experience, some just some maybe three takeaways for military members who are still on active duty, perhaps, of, of what they need to do if they're undergoing these disability evaluations before they retire or separate from active duty? Maybe just, you know, two or three takeaways that you think are important.
1: Sure. I, I think, number one, uh <laughs> a complete and comprehensive physical, physical exam before they separate or retire, and that addresses any and all concerns that the individual has about his or her medical condition, whether it's something serious or something less serious, such as minor hearing loss, and then at or about the time of separation, file a claim with the VA to establish service connection for even the most minor con- conditions because even if the ratings are zero or 10%, which basically pays nothing, uh, you get a VA claim file in place. And then should something develop later on, you're in, in a situation to be able to point to what your condition was when you left service. So many people, particularly retiring for longevity, don't really pay a lot of attention to all the nicks and dings they've accrued over 20 years or 25 years of in many instances very harsh service and and it's incumbent that that they make sure they get that full medical exam and don't just have some PA at the aid station take a look at and you and say yeah you look fine
0: okay um, so Scott, so yes, yeah, so well, I and I think there are some people based on their personality they just don't want to go through. They're like, ah, oh, I don't want to, you know, get. I don't, I'm fine. I don't want to, you know, try to get extra. I really think there are certain people that just don't want to do that. So, but you're saying get the exam because you might have something and the doctor might find it. Where later it's the, it gets worse, you know, in five years, right? So you want it documented at that time. That's your point. Don't. That- that's don't right. Don't ignore it. Just get it done. Just get your exam <laughs> get and, and, it done. And then you could, if you don't have any that you can forget about it. and hopefully you'll never have a problem. But if you do, at least it's documented in the VA records.
1: And look, I, I right now I can see all, all a bunch of guys out there like me shaking their head saying, you sound like my wife telling me to go to the doctor. <laughs> okay. But my experience dealing with folks who have had issues down the road with the VA it's so critical to get that examination upon separation, whether it's retirement or just DTS. The, yeah. the other, uh, another thing that people uh, really need to do, if they're actually going through the disability system, they really need to work carefully and pay attention to their appointed military counsel to understand all their rights. Because what a lot of people do is... They, they go through the system and they just waive all their rights, which may or may not be the right decision at the time, but they do it in an uninformed way. And paying attention to appointed counsel, whether it's MEB counsel or soldiers counsel or airmen's counsel, um, it is very critical that an individual at least consult with military counsel to understand the options and and i think that that pays huge dividends down the road and it's free and and these counsel my experience with the judge advocates and civilians working in the military departments are they are outstanding lawyers and they know the business so i urge people to get with them and listen to them And the last thing I would say is request and obtain a copy of your medical records in what I would call your official military personnel file and other service records while you're in service. It's easier to get them then. And then keep them and save them. And save all your correspondence and other communications, like your orders, your, your awards, all that stuff. Save it. Or if you don't want to save the paper, scan it and keep it somewhere because- all that information is critical if you're going to file a claim with the VA or subsequently with the Army. I don't know how many people say, oh, yeah, well, I, I had this letter from my commander. I had this or I had that. Well, where is it? Oh, I threw it away.
0: hmm Yeah. Yeah. No, that is great advice. And that last one I also can relate to because when people are trying to, you know, again, in my field, what I do help upgrade discharges, they need their personnel records. And when they call me, I'm like, do you have your personnel records? They don't have it. So they have to request it. And that'll take several months. Again, they're all backed up. That takes several months. So everything gets delayed. So I think that was all three of your takeaways were excellent. You know, the physical exam, yeah, you got to get that physical exam. Even if you're, I know I, when I retired, you know, I felt fine had, I didn't have anything. <laughs> the VA found nothing wrong with me, but I I got an exam because you never know. I got an exam and it's, you know, it's there. So you, yep. you just have to do that. Very important. And, uh, and get your records. And, and as, as you said, talk to those, uh, Military Pointed Defense Council, or or they're not called Defense Council, but Council, because they are the experts in that field. So, this was just a wealth of information, Scott. I really want to take. uh, Thank you for taking your uh, very important time to to share all your knowledge with our listeners. I'll talk, and I, I know I'm just going to share a little. Like Scott, you know, is does this pro bono. So he doesn't like take calls from people, but he does get cases on a referral basis from other attorneys. So I'll provide a little bit of more information on the show notes. So um, you, you shouldn't really try to contact him, but he does do it through other attorneys who refer cases to him. Cause not all, all attorneys do this. Um, so Scott, thank you so much. Uh, before we end, is there anything um, you know, you'd like to add that I might've forgot to ask you, or you think that's important to share with our listeners or have we covered um, everything? <laughs>
1: No, no. I, th- I think we've covered everything fair, and, and I just want to thank you, number one, for the opportunity to to speak with you today, and number two, thank you for the work you're doing for for veterans and and service members. Uh, your your website is remarkable. Your your podcasts are. I urge people to to look at them because uh, military law is is a bit of a uh, arcane or, or peculiar practice. And folks r- really need to to focus on, uh, on all these little ins and outs, and you lay them all out on your website. And it's just remarkable what you're doing. So I appreciate that.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Uh, thank you. And we'll catch up again. So um, until next time, thank you, everyone.